As Mike mentioned, we are in a new series that we're starting this morning in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to get to the passage in a couple minutes that Mike read for us already. Uh, we've entitled this series Upside Down. That will make sense here in a couple minutes for you. And uh, Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians is the first of two letters that Paul would write to believers in Thessalonica. Paul is the author, identifies himself as the author uh, in the book, and he also had some traveling companions with him that he mentions in the book at the very outset of the book in Timothy and Silvanus, Silas, um, and he mentions them. Uh, Paul is going to be writing to this church uh, dated around 51 AD. The, The writing was dated around then. It's written during Paul's second missionary journey. And so there's a lot that we're going to see in this uh, short letter, uh, yet really important letter that we want to bring out over the next uh, several weeks and months uh, as we look at First Thessalonians together. One of the things that's really neat about the church in Thessalonica and the understanding of the church in Thessalonica is uh, unlike some of the other churches that we may uh, hear referenced in scripture, we actually get a, a look at the beginnings or the founding of the church in Thessalonica back in the book of Acts chapter 17. And I actually want to begin there this morning in Acts chapter 17. And so in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, we read of Paul uh, who was going to be there preaching the gospel. And we read that what's going to result from the preaching of the gospel is the founding of a church, uh, which happens to be the church in Thessalonica. So follow with me in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, I want to stop for just a minute by way of encouragement, let you know that the same message that Paul was going into the synagogue to proclaim and to preach and to teach then happens to be the same message that here you and I are proclaiming and teaching even today. That should serve as great encouragement. Listen, the message has not changed, and it's not going to change. Uh, That message of the gospel is not something that, depending on how culture goes or circumstances go or how the world turns, is going to change or be altered in any way. The truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel. And what's encouraging is we're going to read about some of the results of the gospel being preached then, and it's the same truth about the results of the gospel being preached today. The gospel transforms and changes lives, and so we have to be faithfully presenting it, and that's what Paul's doing here. This Jesus, Paul says, end of verse 3, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed. And when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, don't miss what was shared in these verses about what was going on here and what was happening here. Here, Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's preaching of the necessity of Jesus. 
And it says that there was many that were coming to know Jesus and believing in him, and they were then taking that same message and proclaiming it to those that were around them. And those that were in positions of authority, the city authorities, were upset and bothered over this. Those that were in positions of authority were upset and bothered over this. They didn't like what was going on because they were proclaiming and preaching Christ as king. And look at what he says. Look at what the crowd says in verse 6. Towards the end of verse 6, it says, When they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And this is what they were shouting. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that, that in the founding of the church in Thessalonica, in the proclamation of the gospel as it was going forth and believers were coming to know Christ as Savior, they were believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the description that was used for the activity of those that knew Christ in the preaching of the gospel by the authorities that were there was this. These men have come here and they have turned the world upside down. Isn't that exciting? I mean, when you, when you hear that and you see that description, they've turned the world upside down. It's incredible. I absolutely love it. I mean, I read that and you have to smile. You have to think like, amen, when you hear that. Because there was a transforming work that was going on and it wasn't because there were special people who had amazing skills and amazing abilities that were doing it. It was the message of the gospel, which I mentioned as we began, it's the same message today that God uses to transform people's lives. They've turned the world upside down. That's why we've entitled the message today, uh, the series actually that we're in in First Thessalonians, Upside Down, because that's exactly what was going on and what was being produced. Paul's going to write this letter to the Thess- Thessalonian believers in response to the great report that he would hear back from Timothy. Now let me stop for a minute because I want us to understand this whole idea of upside down and what that holds with it. Most of us get it when we say, hey, they're turning the world upside down. Maybe you've used that phrase before. You understand what we're talking about. When someone enters into our area or sphere of influence or our lives that we didn't expect and they change everything, we say things get turned upside down. Let me illustrate a couple ways. We we have our bedroom in our bed that uh, my wife and I have in, and we have our sheets and we have our comforter and like a, I think it's proper term is a duvet with a duvet cover on it. And then we have about 6,000 pillows that we put on the, on the bed. Uh, slightly exaggerated the pillows. There's probably, I don't know, a dozen pillows. And so once the bed's made and everything's there, there's practically nowhere to sit on the bed because the, the pillows just cover almost the whole thing. And so once everything's in order and it's all set, it looks nice. I admit it does look nice. But our four-year-old daughter, Leah, when Leah comes running into our bedroom, she jumps on the bed, and it's like her duty to just dishevel all the pillows, like all over the place. And it doesn't really bother me. My wife would bother a little bit more because I just think the pillows need to go anyhow, but it doesn't make sense to me to have to put them back and put them away and then put them back and put them away. Uh, When you want to go to bed, a bed's made for sleeping. But Leah will go in there, and the pillows will be everywhere. And one of two things, when you see it happens, like either we just got robbed because everything's out of place, or that's my four-year-old who jumped in our bed and moved all of the pillows. And, and so we could say, man, she completely turned that bed upside down, right? She made something that was exactly as we wanted. It was the way we wanted it, but she came in, and she just completely changed it. Uh, some of you are aware the Browns are playing the Steelers tonight in the playoff game. 
And, uh, and so, you know that that's happening. I, and there's like an uneasiness. There's an uneasiness there going into this game tonight. I actually think the Browns could win tonight. I'm pulling for the Browns tonight um, because I, I really would much prefer uh, the Browns um, to play the Chiefs uh, so that they can just get destroyed by the Chiefs. I'm just, but listen, if the Browns win today, if the Browns win today and they beat the Steelers, they would play Kansas City next week. The Chiefs, number one seed in the NFL. Just dream with me for a minute, Cleveland Browns fans. If the Browns beat the Steelers today, and then they go next week into Kansas City and beat the Chiefs, how incredible would that be? Because the Buffalo will beat them by like 40 when they play the following week in the AFC Championship. But listen, if the Browns were to beat the Steelers and then they were to beat the Chiefs, they would completely turn the playoff picture in the NFL, what? Upside down. All the people that have the odds, the odds makers, the betters, all the people who have their predictions about who's going to the Super Bowl, who's going to win, who's going to do this, all their predictions, all of their, uh, all of their money, quote unquote, that's on a particular path would be completely turned upside down if the Browns were to win this week and they beat Kansas City next week. We would also call that a miracle, okay? But it would be completely turned upside down. You understand what I'm saying? And here's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like spending some time on this as we get started because I think it's so valuable for us to understand what they were saying about what the gospel was doing. We have a formidable enemy in Satan who is constantly at work in those that do not know Christ. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 2 last week that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit that now works in those who are disobedient, that don't know the Lord. We have an enemy. We live in a culture and a day and age in the world in which we find ourselves living in where what is right is being called wrong and what is wrong is being called right. We live a culture in an environment where truth and, and absolute truth is said to not exist. We live in a culture environment where all that God says in his word is, is being uh, desired by the part of culture to be removed and to be uh, just completely ignored and, and everything's going a particular way. And when you look at a society that is sinful and rebellious to God, that is completely disregarding and desiring the things that would be contrary to the things of God and things seem to be going that way and in that direction and then you insert the gospel of Jesus Christ and lives get transformed and people get changed and the church is vocal and active in ministering and all of a sudden all of the plans quote unquote of darkness and evil and sin get turned upside down. Because of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what was being described in Acts 17 about the believers in Thessalonica. That's what was being described about the church that would soon start in Thessalonica. And that's what was going to continue to happen as Paul now pens this letter to the church in Thessalonica as he commends them, praises and thanks God for them and for the impact that they're making on their world. And it's an encouraging letter. It's a letter that Paul is writing as an encouragement for their faithfulness and their continuance in the gospel. Paul's going to mention in chapter 3, verse 6 of this letter that Timothy came after visiting them and brought back a positive report to Paul, which served as an encouragement because these were believers that were living out the gospel and making an impact. They were turning their world upside down. And, and can I just say from the very beginning of the, the message this morning and the beginning of this series, 
might it be said of you and I as believers in Christ, might it be said of Maranatha Bible Church and the church as a whole, not only in America but around the world, that the church is guilty of turning the world upside down in their witness and message in Jesus Christ. That should be our desire. It should be our desire to turn this culture and world upside down, not by mandating this or mandating that, but by the proclamation and preaching of the gospel. And so Paul's going to encourage them in regards to this. There's going to be a number of themes we're going to see in this letter. Paul's going to include in the letter marks of a healthy church, of what should be true of a church that is healthy and growing, uh, healthy shepherding and what that looks like. He's going to share some uh, eschatology teaching here about future events and things that are going to take place. He's going to emphasize the gospel proclamation and evangelism that needs to take place. And he's also going to put a great emphasis on the hope, the unfading hope and security that the believer in Jesus Christ has as they have been delivered from the wrath of God that is to come. He's going to encourage them to stay the course, to remain faithful, and to continue to turn their world upside down for Christ. And so that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The passage has been read in its totality for us already. I want to revisit now verses 1 through 3 as we begin this morning, because this is going to tell us about Paul's reason even for writing. Paul and Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, from the very beginning, is going to give thanks for these believers. He's going to mention them in their prayers, and he's going to lay out why it is that he's giving thanks, why it is he is so thankful for them, and why it is that he's constantly and consistently mentioning them in prayer before God. And he lays out three reasons why. He talks about the work of faith, uh, the labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to look at those three areas this morning in verses 1 through 10 that Paul is going to address with them and he's going to share by way of encouragement with them. So let's begin first with their work of faith. He says here, uh, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith, labor and love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's a lot of soteriology here in these opening verses as it relates to the doctrine of salvation. And Paul's emphasizing to them, he's remembering their work of faith, the work of faith that has been accomplished in their lives. And he begins in verse 4 when he talks about that by saying, brothers loved by God. Can I stop for a minute and tell you, if you are a follower of Christ today, if you belong to him, if you know Christ as your Savior, I I shared this last week in in the auditorium when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 2, you and I as believers in Christ should be the most joyful and thankful people walking the face of this earth. Because you and I are loved by God. It's an incredible statement that Paul makes here, and it's easy because it's kind of in the midst of other instruction to just kind of like, that's great, love by God. He says, brothers, I I write to you, brothers, remembering before our God and Father you, for we know, brothers, loved by God. I mean, I, I don't know what you're facing today or what you're dealing with today or what has come crashing into your life over the past several weeks. I have no idea what it might be, and it would be, inappropriate or wrong of me to say, hey, listen, I don't know what it is you're going through, but I understand because I don't. 
But what I can tell you in the midst of whatever it is as a believer in Christ today we are facing or enduring, there is hope and joy and thanksgiving to be offered to God because no, no matter what it is that's on your plate or before you today, you are loved by God. You're loved by God. And I understand sometimes people throw that word around and sometimes people tell us that and we don't really believe them when they tell us that. You've probably had someone tell you before, oh, I love you so much. And you're like, do you really love me? Like, like I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's true. Or, or other people who might say, oh, I love you. And you're like, okay, because you don't really care if they do or not. <laughs> but when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to God Almighty, to know with certainty that we can say today as children of God, we are loved by God. That, that should be meaningful to us. That should mean something today. It should have a, a changing effect on our outlook on life, but also on our outlook of our present situations and circumstances that we are loved by God. We're loved by the one who has the authority and power to do whatever it is that he pleases. We're loved by him. But he goes on in the passage and he says, Beloved, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, this is another reason this morning that that as believers in Christ, I, I don't understand fully and I can't fully explain, but I know that scripture shows this and teaches this, that he tells these believers in Christ, not only are you loved by God, but understand God has chosen you. God desired relationship with you. You've been chosen of God. And and he says, for we know, brothers, that he has chosen you. How? Well, the work of faith that has been done in their lives and that is being produced in their lives and that is being lived out in their lives is clearly demonstrating an evidence that they are chosen by God and loved by God, that they belong to him. And this is something that I think is is easy for us to, to kind of say amen to, but hard for us to kind of take an inside look at our own lives and say, is it true of us? Paul says, we know with certainty, we know Loved by God that he has chosen you. We know from the way that you're living, from the proclamation of the gospel, from the work of the spirit, from the conviction of the spirit, from the work of faith that is in your lives that you belong to Christ. And and it's hard sometimes to step back for a moment and ask the question that so often needs to be asked in our own lives. Is it true of you and I that we are loved and known and chosen by God and that that is being seen in our lives? He goes on in this passage where he talks about being loved by God and chosen by God. And he says, listen, here's how we know that. He uses the word because. Verse 5, he uses the word because. And so he's given an explanation of how they know that they have been chosen by God and how they know that they have been loved by God and how they know that there's the work of faith that's been done in their lives. Look at what he says. Because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Don't miss what he's saying here. When it comes to this area of work of faith, when it comes to this area of authenticity, of relationship with Christ, he says, we know that you know him. We know that you have been chosen by him. We know that he loves you. We know that you belong to him because what? 
because you have received the gospel that has come to you. You've received the gospel that has come to you. You've received it with great power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. With full conviction. In other words, Paul is telling them that we know you are loved by God. We know you are chosen by God. We know that this work of faith has been accomplished in your lives because your lives, your responsiveness to the gospel, your recognition of the gospel, the conviction of the spirit of God in relationship to the gospel is sounding forth from your lives. Listen, I want to say something I think is important this morning that we need to hear. You and I are not saved or belonging to Christ simply because physically our bodies are in the church. It's not proof that we belong to Jesus because we are a member of a church. It's not proof that we belong to Jesus because our parents raised us in the church. What Paul says here is Paul says it has everything to do with our response, our recognition and conviction around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you would claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but the conviction of the Spirit of God is not part of your life for sin. If you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ or proclaiming that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but there hasn't been a clear recognition or embracing on your part that the gospel is the truth and alone is the means and manner of salvation. If you're here today and you have not recognized that Christ is, is Lord of your life, that he's transformed you and that you are to live for him, I would ask you to seriously consider and examine your life to say, do I truly know him? Paul is commending them for the work of faith that's been done in their lives and that they're showing and demonstrating. You have become, he says, verse six, imitators of us. He says, you know what kind of men we were in your presence, and now you become imitators of us. There's this work of faith that happened in their lives, but there's also uh, this, this understanding that the work of faith that was in their lives, it was producing something, it was having an effect, and everybody could see it. Every, every Sunday, I have an energy drink before I preach, which might not be the wisest thing. But on Sunday mornings, I, I have an energy drink, but most mornings, I either drink uh, a cup of coffee... It's really good. It's peach, mango, uh, bang. Peach, mango, and it's called bang. And, um, whoa, it's good. But I normally drink half of this before I preach in the senior service just to let everybody get awake in there and then uh, drink some more of it before I, I come in here and preach in the auditorium. I, I normally drink the whole thing before the first service. I'm in the auditorium. And, um, but when someone has a cup of coffee in the morning, maybe if you're a coffee drinker, you've seen those signs that people have or, or pictures or memes or whatever, and it says, like, don't talk to me until I have my cup of coffee and, you know, ignore, don't, you know, don't come in my presence before I have a cup of coffee or whatever. And what people are saying is if they're used to having a cup of coffee or caffeine in the morning, until they really get that into their system, they're not, like, normal, right? They're not who they need to be. And if you've ever drank coffee consistently or energy drinks consistently, you know when you don't have that in your system, that caffeine. Sometimes you get a caffeine headache because you're being deprived of, uh, of what you need that morning or whatever. Uh, but also sometimes when you drink an energy drink or you drink coffee, it's in times when you're feeling tired and you want kind of a pick-me-up or you want to be more awake or more alert. And so you have an energy drink or you'll have a five-hour energy thing or you'll have you know, a cup of coffee or you'll have like an extra shot of espresso in your Starbucks when you go there. Give me an extra shot or two extra shots or whatever. And, and it has this effect. 
It has this effect. And, and so I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and be like, hey, did you have like an energy drink or something before you came here? I'm like, yes, I did. You know, and, and it's because it has an effect, right? It has an effect. And, and why I'm sharing that with you is, is this is the picture. This is the, the representation, I think, that Paul is relating and giving in regards to the Thessalonian believers. That he's going to say in this passage that the word of God has sounded forth from you. So that I don't even have, we don't have a need to say or do anything. Because the word of God and the gospel that you received is effectively working in you. And it's not something that you're able to keep private. Anybody who's around you is seeing it, is observing it, is processing it. And their response to it is what the response of these, uh, these authorities were in the book of Acts chapter 17. That these men who have turned the world upside down are now here. And they're trying to do the same thing. You see, this work of faith that Paul is giving thanks to God for and remembering before them is something that couldn't be ignored. He goes on to say, your labor of love, and in verse 3, remembering your work of faith and, and also the labor of love that's present amongst them. And this is important because uh, sometimes we can think of following Jesus Christ and think, man, if I come to know Jesus, if you've ever heard someone preach or, or heard the message that, listen, if you come to know Jesus, everything will always be great. You'll have no problems. You'll be you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise if you just come to know Jesus. That's, that's a lie. On the contrary, the word of God teaches that all those who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And so truthfully, when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can say, listen, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You and I are deserving of the wrath of Almighty God. And without Christ, we are destined for an eternity in hell, separated from God because of our sin, because all have sinned. And the wrath of God abides on us, but God, in his love and in his mercy and in his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life. He was put to death, the death of a cross, not because he was forced to die, but because he willfully, he willfully submitted to the will of the Father and offered his life as an offering, as a living sacrifice, that he put himself on that cross and endured the wrath of Almighty God on himself, so that in our place, we then, through Christ, could be made righteous in God's sight. We could be justified in the sight of God, no longer guilty, but forgiven. We could be saved. And that's what God offers in salvation, but you need to know that if you're going to live godly in Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer because this world is not your home. You need to understand and know that if you come to know Christ as Savior and you believe in him, that you are called what the word of God says are aliens and strangers in this world and in this culture because we live in a world and culture that is lost and embraces sin and is doing things that are contrary to God. They are the enemies of God and you are a child of God and so this is not your home. And so you need to be prepared because you're going to be hated by the world. Because if the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate you. And that means it might cost you at times positions in your job. It might cost you financially. It might cost you reputation-wise. It might cost you if you stand for Jesus Christ. But you also need to understand that the sufferings that you're going to endure in this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That's the message of the gospel and the reality of what the gospel brings. And yet, here we are in 2021 where so many are preaching the gospel of prosperity and the gospel of everything will be golden if you just come to know Jesus. Paul's thanking God on behalf of these believers for their work of faith and the labor of love 
this labor of love, this work that is working out in their lives. He says, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just that one verse, verse 6, is a verse that you could look at and be like, man, that's just crazy. That's ridiculous to try to understand and to fathom. You received the word. You became imitators of us. Listen, when we think about imitate Paul, right, as Paul imitates Christ, imitate Peter as Peter imitates Christ, imitate whoever as they imitate Christ. When we think of that, we think, oh, man, that's great. I want to be an imitator of Paul. I want to I do what Paul did, and I want to live like Paul lived, and I want to be an imitator of him, and I want to be an imitator of Jesus Christ. I want to imitate him. Listen to what that brings with it. Paul was a man who was familiar with suffering and persecution and imprisonment. He was hated. People wanted to literally kill Paul because of his testimony in the gospel. And listen to what Paul says to these believers. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And he says, you received the word in much affliction. Everything wasn't good for you when you received the word of God. Everything wasn't easy for you. Not everything's easy for you. There's persecution and affliction and hatred. People were angry with you and they want to destroy you and they want to destroy the name of Christ and yet you receive the word in much affliction and look at what he says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is crazy. It's crazy as a believer in Christ that we are said to be privileged not only to believe in Jesus but to suffer for him. It's crazy that in Acts chapter 5, The believers would be preaching the gospel of Jesus. They would be imprisoned. They would be punished. They would be beaten. They would be commanded, quit preaching, and they would be let go. And it says they went from there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. When was the last time that happened in our lives? That we would rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer. And listen, here's why this is so important. This is so valuable because that's coming here. It's coming. It's not an excuse for you and I as believers in Christ to say, I'm just going to keep silent because it might bring some pain and suffering. It's coming. And as believers in Christ, we need to have at the forefront of our minds that true, authentic work of faith that God has done in our lives and enabled us to have in our lives and the labor of love that should follow that. I'm always astounded going overseas and visiting with the church And believers in Christ, wherever you go, where they're suffering persecution, their attitudes and their perspectives. I immediately thought when I read this verse, when it talks about receiving the word with much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit, I thought of the the, the believers in China. When we went over to Thailand to do Chinese church planner training, uh, both years that I had a privilege of going over there and doing that training, there were times when we were over there where we would have isolated times of one-on-one uh, with church planters from China. Uh, sometimes it was just conversation, obviously through a translator, where we would be listening to them. And, and Pastor Butch and I would be sitting down with them, and others would be there, and they would be sharing, just one of them at a time, sharing with us their story and sharing with us how they came to know Christ and how God transformed their lives and how they are now preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And here we are sitting across from these brothers and sisters in Christ, these believers who we will spend all of eternity worshiping with, who we will spend all of eternity with in glory. We're with these believers and they're sitting in the chair by themselves sitting there as we're over here and they're sharing and a translator sharing back with us and you can see the joy as they talk about what God is doing. 
All of them without exception, either having been imprisoned once or more than once or their family in prison, they had suffered greatly because of their stance in the gospel from the Chinese government, from those in their culture, from those around them, and all that's going on in China in the destructive, trying to destroy the gospel of Christ in the name of Christ. And these believers who have suffered greatly, much loss, much pain, are sitting across from us. And it was almost as though we would ask this question at the end of their sharing. How can we pray for you? We would close out every, every session with, how can we pray for you? We want to pray for you. How can we pray for you? And you would think someone would like, talk to them beforehand and be like, listen, when the Americans ask you how they can pray for you, this is what you're supposed to say. Because every one of them basically said the exact same thing. And this is what they said. They said, pray for me. Pray for me that God would give me the boldness to preach the gospel. Pray for me that God would give me the boldness and strength to preach the gospel. Every one of them, that was their prayer. We'd go into a session where they would all be present and they would be singing and worshiping. And I'd stood in the back, I have video of it. You've heard me share this before if you were here a couple years ago. Took video in the back and it would be this whole sea of, of believers here. Uh, these Chinese believers that would be there hands raised, hands clapping with joy and proclamation and worship, worshiping their God. I mean, it's what I think of when I think of Paul talking about you receive the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere that we need not say anything. This is their labor of love. The labor of love that they are day in and day out serving, following, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ, desiring to see those that are far from God and know him as Savior. You've probably used that statement before. It's a labor of love. We talk about that when it comes to like our pets. If they get the garbage, you're cleaning up. It's a labor of love. Maybe you have talked about that when it comes to your work, whatever you're doing. Oh, it's a labor of love. We talk about that with our family maybe that we don't get along with but we put up with in certain situations. It's a labor of love. We've used that statement before. I, I wonder what does that look like for you as a believer in Jesus Christ today? What is that labor of love that you're committed to in seeking to reach the lost? And here's the amazing thing. I talked about this at the very beginning. You and I don't have the power or authority to save anybody or transform anybody or change anybody. But that's also not what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let God do what only God can do. It's his work. It's entirely his work, not ours. And so let him do what he does. But do what he's called you to do. What he's called me to do as followers of Christ. A labor of love. And then thirdly, he talks about their steadfastness of hope. Verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I want to stop for a moment. This is the encouragement that, that Paul really has here is that some time has gone on from when the church was first founded and the church first began and the whole world was being turned upside down through the message of the gospel. And now Paul was receiving word back, a report about the church and how that they turned to God from idols and they're serving the living and true God. This is the amazing thing is Paul's hearing back that that which began, the work that began in them is continuing in them. 
that they're seeing this continued. And they've turned from God, from serving idols and worshiping idols to serving the living and true God. It is evidenced and seen in their living that they are following and serving Christ. And it's a good point of question for you and I today is, is do others that know us and see us and are around us and hear us, watch us, would that same testimony be true of our lives from their perspective that we have turned to following and living for our Savior, Jesus Christ? What is present in our lives that would demonstrate that? What is present in our lives that would show that? But he, he goes on from that then to say, you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the steadfastness of their hope. This is that which causes them to be unshakable, immovable, is the steadfastness of their hope that they know with certainty their belief in Christ. They know with certainty the coming of Christ. They know with certainty that they're waiting for his son from heaven, the one that God has raised from the dead, who delivers them from the wrath that is to come, the steadfastness of their hope. When you think of steadfastness of hope, you think about it as being something that cannot be shaken, something that cannot be removed. Um, Leah, our daughter Leah, got a, a marble set for Christmas, and it's a marble set that has like um, all of these pieces that you can build these towers with it, and you can erase the marbles, like you put the marbles in and erase them to the top, and Leah will come in, and she's very cute, she's four, and she comes in, and she'll have her marble bag, and she'll come to me, and she'll be like, and she, she likes to do this thing where she like talks like with an accent, even though she, she doesn't normally talk with an accent, but when she wants something, she'll come in, and she'll go, Daddy, do you want to play marbles? That's what she says, and I don't know where she picked it up. And I'm like, you know, honey, you don't have an accent. I don't tell her that. She, she comes in and she's like, Daddy, do you want to play marbles? And I'll say, yeah, honey, we can play marbles. And without fail, every kid, every little kid, when you're building a structure, what is the most important thing to them about building that structure? How high it is, right? They want a tall structure. And so she wants this thing to be like two inches wide, but like six feet high, right? And beyond the fact that I can't reach that high, I tell her, honey, we need to, we need to put that down a little bit. Because we need, to, we, need to re, we need to reinforce the foundation of this, this structure. Because if we put this marble structure up and we go to play the marbles, that thing's coming crashing down because it has no support. It has no, no firmness to its foundation. And so what I always do is I'll grab another set of these blocks that she has and I will reinforce it by like building like a separate structure that is there simply to reinforce the primary structure so that it doesn't falter, so it doesn't fall. And here's what I think is so amazing about this. Paul's talking to the believers who are turning the world upside down with the message of the gospel. And he speaks about the authentic faith that they have, that God has transformed their lives, that they are loved by God, that they are chosen by God, that the word of God that they received is working in them. And they are examples for others to follow. And they have this labor of love that is being produced and lived out in their lives. But he caps it off in this section with their steadfastness of hope that the foundation or that which is causing them to have such a firm and, and supportive foundation so that they are not faltering, so that they're not wavering, so that they're not affected by all that's happening around them is this steadfastness of hope that there is the coming of the Lord, that Jesus is coming, God's Son from heaven, and that they have been delivered from the wrath that is to come. And that is the hope that they have that is steadfast, it's immovable, it's foundational. The foundation that they have is in Christ. And all that they knew to be true of Jesus 
and the faith that they have in Christ and the message of the gospel and the returning of their Savior and their faith being made sight and their deliverance from the wrath that is to come, the wrath of God that abides on all who do not know Christ. It's their steadfastness of hope. Because of that, because of that, no matter what was coming into their lives, the persecution, the hatred, the difficulties, they were turning their world upside down with the gospel. As we close, let me just give you three encouragements. Number one, be encouraged because God has done an incredible work in our lives as believers. If you're a believer in Christ today, be encouraged. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with. I can't claim to know that. But what I do know is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if God has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel and you know him today, God has done an incredible work in your life. And no one can take that away from you. Nothing can change that or take that away from you. In Christ, not only are you secure in this life, but your eternity is secure. And nothing can change that. No one can change that. Number two, the incredible work of God in our lives should be evidenced in all that we do. I mean, we we can say, well, that's a very broad statement. It is. It's purposely a very broad statement. Why do I say in all that we do? Why not be specific? Because literally in all that we do, in all that we do, the incredible work of God should be evidenced. We are not here for ourselves. That's not why we're here. And so in everything that we say and everything that we do, the incredible work of God should be evidenced. And number three, we should live and work always in constant view of our future reality. Again, keep at the forefront of our minds, even as Job did. When we think about Job and all that Job endured, Job lost his health, his kids, his reputation, everything. In the midst of all that was going on, Job had this hope. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and though my flesh be destroyed, Yet with my eyes I shall see God. View life, live and work always in constant view of our future reality. Always. I believe in doing that, understanding that, and living that, we as believers could have a part in turning our world upside down for Jesus Christ. These men, these men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. That's what I want you to think of as we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I want you to think of that during this letter, that these were believers who were turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the example of the Thessalonian believers. Uh, God, the example that Paul gives, and also, Lord, the example of our, our Savior Jesus. I pray that we too would be guilty of turning our world upside down with the gospel of Christ, that it wouldn't be about us, it would be about you. God, that we would live always in constant view of eternity, knowing that we have a steadfastness of hope that does not fade away, knowing that there's this labor of love that you have called us to, but Lord, that's only possible because of the work of faith that you have accomplished in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we have not chosen you, but you have chosen us. Thank you that when we were dead, you made us alive. 
Thank you, Lord, that before the foundation of the world, you chose us in Christ. And thank you for your love. I pray that we would be so guilty of so living for you faithfully that this is what others would say and complain about the church, that these men who have turned the world upside down, these women who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, serving their king and proclaiming all that is true of him. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.